I'm Bill Castle, and this is Free Expression. This program is all about conveying the Christian message from a Catholic point of view and defending the liberty which makes it possible to do that. We talk with creative, interesting people about a sophisticated censorship operation and exploring the spiritual dimension of memory. Join us, sit back, and enjoy some free expression. to remember the days of Walter Cronkite and Huntley and Brinkley. Families would sit down together to watch the evening news, and while sometimes the day's events were upsetting, even distressing, we never felt that we had to be protected from what we were hearing. News has always been edited, of course. Somebody has to decide what's worth reporting and how the story should be framed, but rarely was a news item suppressed. You might not get the whole story, and what you did hear had a particular slant, but word usually got through. Things aren't like that anymore. Nowadays, news reporting is so tied up with political agendas and financial interests that there can be strong incentives to keep us in the dark about important facts that have tremendous impact on our lives. This manipulation of data and information has reached a kind of peak with a company called NewsGuard, which works to discredit certain news outlets and to drive traffic and ad revenue to other more favored media. Joseph Vasquez is associate editor for Free Speech America, a project of the Media Research Center. He's looked deeply into the operations of NewsGuard, and he's with us now. Joseph, thanks very much for taking time to explain what this is all about. Well, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the discussion. We encounter so many instances of people promoting wild theories on the Internet or working out their paranoid fantasies that the idea of having someone to identify news sources that are accurate and authoritative does have a certain appeal. NewsGuard, I guess, is presenting itself as doing that. But what's the real story? The real story is, is that NewsGuard wants to make George Orwell's 1984 reality. Hmm. It wants to become the de facto Ministry of Truth. And if anyone who has read George Orwell knows that when you have a Ministry of Truth, you have this overarching entity that tells you what the truth is. And if you don't ascribe to a particular narrative that they're pushing, they'll try to censor you or silence you. Or in NewsGuard's case, strip away your ad revenue. We're seeing this play out in real time. And what makes NewsGuard's influence even more terrifying is not only are the schools, like the, the teachers' unions, pushing NewsGuard into the schools to tell students what outlets are credible and which aren't, but then also it is receiving funding from the government itself. It received a like a, a, around a $750,000 contract from the Department of Defense to look into what's called misinformation footprints or something like that of that nature. Not only is this entity like, trying to make itself you know, the modern-day Ministry of Truth, it's receiving financial backing from the government with our taxpayer dollars. That is absolutely terrifying, and then the implications of that going into the future. How does their system work? What, what is it that they do, actually? Well, the way it works is that they attach what's called nutrition labels to different media companies' websites. And in those nutritional, lab nutrition labels, they assess a number of articles that they cherry-pick and they analyze based on what they consider to be fact and fiction. 
And based on their criteria, like, for example, one of them is called gathers and presents information responsibly. They don't believe that you gather information responsibly. They will dig your score. And they rate scores for different media outlets on the basis of a 0 to 100 scale. And what we found at the Media Research Center across, I think it was about two studies within a year of each other, we found that NewsGuard consistently, consistently gives higher marks to left-wing media outlets over conservative media outlets. The disparity is ridiculous. We found through our research that NewsGuard tends to give an average score of 93 out of 100 to left-leaning outlets, while only an abysmal 66 out of 100 to right-leaning outlets. And so we decided, okay, we're going to wait a year, we, uh, and then we're going to conduct the same study again and see if the needle is moved in one way or another. And what we found is that the needle is barely moved. The second study found that the disparity was 91 out of 100 in favor of left-leaning outlets on average versus, again, a 66 out of 100 for right-leaning outlets. So we see that the bias remains the same. And if NewsGuard is just rubber-stamping leftist outlets, like, for example, the New York Times or USA Today or NBC News, I mean, we already know that they're trying to shift the pendulum towards crediting left-wing outlets and completely denigrating the influence and reach of right-leaning outlets. And now it's got taxpayer dollars to do it, which is just terrifying if you care about a free press or let alone the First Amendment. Yeah, and they are hitting right at the heart of how news services operate. They, they provide this service to advertisers and potential advertisers so that they can direct people either toward or away from the outlets they're favoring. That's exactly right. And what's even more you know, ironic about this, when the whole Hunter Biden laptop bombshell had come out from the New York Post, its CEO, Stephen Brill, had come on CNBC, I think it was in October of 2020, right before the election, and tried to characterize the whole Hunter Biden laptop thing as a possible Russian hoax. What's hilarious about that is that the CEO of this outfit was pushing misinformation because now we know that the Hunter Biden laptop story was in fact legit. But meanwhile, it wants to be the arbiter of truth for everything else. But it couldn't be trusted for one of the biggest stories of the 2020 election. So if it couldn't even be trusted to give out accurate information during the 2020 election, how could anyone have any confidence that it's going to do so going forward? It's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, another example was the Steele dossier. That was pretty much the foundation of the whole Trump-Russia collusion hoax. BuzzFeed News, which had posted the entire dossier on its website, was one of the outlets, the major outlets that broke the news about this dossier thing. It has a perfect 100 out of 100 score. I mean, it, of course, you know, later in the years it went defunct, but it still maintained its perfect 100 out of 100 score, even after we reached out to NewsGuard and asked them, wait a minute, why do they have a perfect score, even though they published what was clear disinformation? And they give you every kind of excuse in the book. But they'll let that slide. But anyone else that doesn't ascribe to, for example, um, the leftist narrative on election integrity or COVID-19, you name it, NewsGuard will have no hesitation in dinging your score and alerting advertisers that you are a potential threat to their brand. And now that it's getting taxpayer money, it should scare every American from, from New York all the way to California. This is a terrifying development. Do you have any research that shows the effectiveness of this program? Are people taking their ratings seriously? Are advertisers actually making ad-buying decisions based on their recommendations? How, how, how much of an impact are they really having? Oh, it's actually a tremendous impact. I mean, some of the media outlets that we've spoken to have told us that their advertising dollars have been stripped from them. I mean, we have uh, the Free Speech Alliance. You know, it's a, 
It's a coalition of different members of the conservative movement who've had their websites deemed by NewsGuard. And they tell us their stories about how it affects them, how it affects their ability to reach, how it affects their ability to, to, to get funding. I mean, it is, it is absolutely effective. And now the teachers union under Randy Weingarten, a leftist outfit that operates across the country, is in collaboration with NewsGuard in incorporating its rating system inside the school to then indoctrinate children. So we know that this outfit has major pull. And it's only going to increase the longer that legacy media continue to credit this news organization. It is astonishing the, the degree to which NewsGuard has elevated itself to be kind of like the grandfather of this whole Ministry of Truth apparatus within the media and tech circles. It is absolutely terrifying, to say the least. NewsGuard as an entity is dangerous. It is dangerous not only for right-leaning media, but just a free press in general. It should not be in the business of telling people what's true and what isn't. The people have to be the ones to decide that, to sort out facts and fiction. But the moment you start delegating that to some sort of higher authority like NewsGuard, forget it. You just set up the precipice for our freedoms to be lost. If NewsGuard continues to go, go this route and continue to get government funding, the irony of that is just, I mean, they're literally trying to take the script of 1984 and make it reality. That's what it is. What's the answer to this? What can be done? I assume if the election brings us in a new administration, maybe the government funding could be reduced. But what can people do in the meantime? Well, the first thing we got to do is ensure that NewsGuard is not getting any government funding to begin with. I mean, the MRC is part of a, another coalition of leaders you know, calling on Congress to defund NewsGuard. NewsGuard should not be funded with taxpayer dollars. That whole incestuous relationship between this company that tries to operate as an Orwellian entity getting money from our tax dollars, that relationship should not exist at all. So we've called on Congress, defund NewsGuard, so they don't get any taxpayer dollars. And you know what? Sunlight is the best disinfectant. The American people need to know that this kind of operation exists, and they need to call their representatives in Congress and ensure that NewsGuard does not get another cent in taxpayer dollars. Now, you guys at the Media Research Center have done yeoman service for a long, long time. You've been exposing bias in the media. You have uh, been exposing various distortions and unfairness and approach. Tell us about your operation. How do you work? What's your source of funding? You know, who else is out there fighting the good fight? Well, the Media Research Center, as you know, has been operating since 1987. I joined the Media Research Center a few years ago, and you know, operating on this new front, big tech. You know, big tech is obviously, is obviously the new exploding threat to freedom of speech. When you think of the censorship apparatus that has taken place, whether it be in Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, you name it. I mean, you know, we spearheaded this new project, this fight, and a lot of other conservative organizations are fighting with us. They're joining us. They're realizing that the threat of big tech, including NewsGuard, is a very substantial one. I mean, if you lose freedom of speech in this country, if freedom of speech goes out the window, every other freedom is in jeopardy. The strength of the American people is their ability to speak freely. And if that is gone, all bets are off. So we're proud to stand along other organizations that, that promote free speech and want to see that, that crucial, crucial right protected. And we're going to continue to do that going forward, especially in light of this you new know, exploding industry of artificial intelligence where now you're going to have these big tech companies outsourcing their censorship apparatus to a chatbot that will now scrape the Internet for quote-unquote disinformation and try to censor it, whether it be through Facebook, whether it be through Google, whether it be through Twitter, any of these entities that have the ability to monitor and control speech. 
They need to be held to account when it comes to protecting the First Amendment. This whole thing that we discovered with the Twitter files and government colluding with big tech to censor Americans, that should be one of the top issues going into the next election, the top issues for Americans right now, because aside from the economy, if people aren't able to voice their opinions freely without being afraid that the government is monitoring everything that they're saying on the Internet, I mean, for goodness sakes, I mean, what kind of country that we have? We have dystopia. We no longer live in America. We will end up living in a, dy in a dystopian nightmare. So we need to fight back on this. Well, where can people go to find out more about the Media Research Center and maybe locate uh, other organizations that they can get behind? Well, you can go to mrc.org. You can find all the information with regards to our media bias operations. And in addition to the Free Speech Alliance, you can see our members list there and see who's joined in this fight for free speech. You can also visit our main website at newsbusters.org that has all the latest analysis on media bias that we're constantly churning out on a day-to-day -day basis. And also our latest website, censortrack.org. It's a new operation that the Media Research Center started, and I'm a proud leader of this project. This project looks to document every single case of censorship that we can find in the Internet. If anyone, either you, Bill, or your listeners, have, if any of you have ever have been censored by big tech, we want to know about it. Reach out to us via the contact form on censortrack.org. Tell us what happened. Send us the documentation, and we're going to investigate this and hold Big Tech accountable, because this is an emerging threat that needs to be addressed. And the only that we, we, we can do that is if we speak out. Joseph Vasquez of the Media Research Center, thanks an awful lot for taking time to talk with us. This is clearly one of the key issues of our time, and it, it needs to be brought to people's attention. People need to be alert and, and take action. Exactly right, Bill. Thank you so much for having me. memories. Some of the things we remember are pleasant, even heartwarming. Others we just as soon forget. But the total of what we have stored in our minds accounts for much of who we are. Memories affect our spiritual lives. The things we've experienced and the interactions we've had with other people have a tremendous influence on our walk with the Lord. Casey Tigret is a theologian and a spiritual director who has delved deeply into the phenomenon of human memory. His book, The Practice of Remembering, explores the links between memory and faith and even provides biblical guidance for dealing with the things we retain from our past. Casey, thanks very much for being with us. Gladly. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Do we actually know what memory is, how the mind works to retain and recall these past experiences? We do, in a sense. It's, it's kind of a mystery still. And I, from the outset, I have to say that I'm, I'm very much not a neuroscientist. I am armchair neuroscientist at best. <laughs> and even the bona fide, degreed, and experienced neuroscientists are still working out the aspects of how we get to the memories we have. But there are some things we do know, partially through science and then partially through 
just the lived experience and stories of people who can talk with some eloquence and detail about their memories. There are things that end up sticking with us that we can recall with relative ease. And more than that, when we press them and when we think them through, say, perhaps in a context like counseling, uh, we can find the ways in which those aspects, those stories, have had a deep impact. Those stories in the past have had a deep impact on our present. And sometimes it, it just comes up in the most interesting ways. You, you have a conversation with someone, and you ask them a question about how they got to where they are. They'll tell you how they remember everything that's happened before. You know, how tell us the story. I, I do a lot of work as a pastor with premarital couples. And I'll always ask them, tell me the story about how you met. And that story is edited, and and there are details that are left out. There are details that are included. And so it's both parties, both the, the, the members of this couple, speaking out of what they remember about how they came to be. And so in that sense, there is something going on. There's some way that moments, smells, experiences, failures, successes, traumas all get stored in our brains. And then they end up either having an explicit or implicit impact on who we are. That extends to every aspect of life, including our life with God. How does all of this factor into our religious awareness? Well, much of religion is based on stories that have been passed down. Stories like Scripture, whatever religious tradition you're a part of, especially even within Christian traditions, we begin with a text that was passed down through the memory of a people and those stories become our memories. So our whole understanding of God, even our whole understanding of God, self, and others, is based on stories and words that we hear and remember. Kids who get taught the story of Noah or the story of David within a Christian tradition, they remember a giant, they remember a flood, they remember these stories, and they're part of their understanding of, of God and themselves. And even the way that we celebrate, that religious communities celebrate together when we do liturgy together or when we share communion together or Eucharist together or when we practice acts of justice and service together. Those stories create memories within us that help us to not only conceive of who God is, but also of who we are and what we're becoming. I, I don't think it's possible to have a life with God without some kind of story or memory of God from our past. So whether that's a lovely person in our childhood who introduced us to the concept of God, or a teacher, or the way our parents' faith has impacted us. So our faith story is really rooted on the things that we remember about how we were taught about faith and then how we experienced it. And obviously that can go two ways. Those can be very good and very healthy. But sometimes those can also be very damaging and dysfunctional, especially if a religious upbringing was, was unhealthy or someone who had influence over us in our religious development was transmitting pain rather than transforming pain. And so there's an element of our memories that is, that is in every bit of how we view religion, faith, God, self, others, mission, even down to the practices. We pray. I learned how to pray by hearing a particular pastor growing up, hearing him pray constantly. And so I learned from remembering, okay, so how did he, how did he do that? So how do I do that now? 
Yeah, I, I guess those early experiences of going to church or not going to church have profound influences. We, we retain them throughout our lives. Absolutely. I find at my age, I, I have a whole lot of memories stored up, but I can't be sure that I'm remembering them accurately. I mean, <laughs> it's frequently the case that my wife will say, oh, it didn't happen like that at all. <laughs> How do we cull through all of that and really get an accurate picture of what our memories are trying to tell us? I think it's a two-edged sword in some ways, uh, because the accuracy of our memories is something that's going to be difficult to get at especially because our memories do change over time based on our own viewpoint. I, as a 20-something, saw my childhood one way. But then when I became a father myself, I began to see some of the things my parents did and said. I saw it in a very different way. Hmm. And so my memory was still there, but how I interpreted that memory changed based on my position and posture in life. The question is, sometimes it's good to get accurate details and have someone, it usually takes someone else to help us. Sometimes it's through the process of uh, intensive therapy that we're able to pull some of those details out of our subconscious. But, but more so, it is a matter of saying, these are the things I remember, and these are the things I, that stand out. The question is, why do those things stand out? In any one situation, there are hundreds of inputs, thousands of inputs from sight to smell to touch to taste to sound that happen in every story and every memory that we have. We don't keep them all pristine. And so then the question becomes, why do we remember those particular things rather than others? And that's where I think the, some of the insight for our faith comes from, is what is it about that moment that stuck with me and that not only stuck with me, but I have over the years developed a very smooth and easily accessible pathway in my brain to get that memory and those details, be able to retrieve them. So why was that so powerful? Why did that stand out to me? And I, and I do believe that is something that, that God wants to explore with us. Let's talk about why you remember what you remember and how that has shaped you, but also how that may be shaping you for the future. What are the implications of this for the church? Uh, preaching, for instance, I always find sermons more interesting if they uh, include personal reflections, and I, I think most people are like that. Yeah. Well, I, I love because, because most 26 years of my life has been working in churches and working as a pastor— I do love to mention that not only do individuals in churches have memories, but churches themselves have memories yeah. of their own experiences of where they've been, sometimes a community that has faced significant trauma or significant difficulties have memories. Some churches have memories of conflict that they've worked through in the past. So when it comes to preaching, um, some of what we're doing when we're preaching is we're creating new memories for people. We're giving stories, we're presenting stories, not only ours, but also we're presenting our stories, but we're also entering into the stories of others. I have tried to help preachers over um, the course of my life to understand that the better you connect a person to a story that they find an entry point to, that they can say, okay, I can find myself in that, the more likely they are to connect with whatever passage of Scripture, whatever thought that you're trying to convey to them. And so what we're hoping to create is a connection point where 
you know, if you're if you're preaching or teaching from a particular text, and that act is to help encourage and challenge, then what you'd love to do is give a person a connecting point that they can go back to, where they may read that passage again and say, "Oh, I remember that was when this person told the story about what happened to them when they were growing up," and so it creates a nice little tether that they can use to reconnect with mm-hmm. a story that, you know, from a first century, we look at the Bible we're looking at first, we're looking at centuries old, multiple languages, multiple historical movements. And so sometimes it just feels like it's impenetrable. How do we ever connect to this thing? But a story from now that connects to a story from then, it gives people a memory that they can hold on to, something they can file away in their brain so that when they engage that text or other texts that are like it, they have an ability to reconnect with that. Yeah. And that forms them. That helps them to find their own story in the bigger story, and then it helps them ask the question of, so, God, what, is this, what does this mean? What do I do with this now? Well, of course, I, the Bible itself was an exercise in writing down people's memories, those tales that had been passed along through the oral tradition and, uh, and became a sacred tradition. So, yeah, this is very relevant. The book is The Practice of Remembering, Uncovering the Place of Memories in Our Spiritual Life by Casey Tigret. InterVarsity Press has put it out. I assume it's in general circulation by now. Where can people obtain it? People can pick that book up wherever they would like. I know that it's it's on the InterVarsity Press website. That's one place. I also am always in favor of small bookstores. So there's a wonderful online bookstore called Bookshop that supports independent book retailers. But if you uh, would like, you can also find that on Amazon as well. Well, thank you very much for being with us. It sounds like a fascinating book. I wish you the best of luck with it. Grateful for the time. Thank you so much. popular song from 1915 by Egbert von Alstein and Gustav Kahn, provided courtesy of sheetmusicsinger.com. Please let me know what you think about these shows. Tell me what books you're reading, what media you follow, what sort of music communicates with your soul. I'd love your suggestions on topics we might explore that touch the lives of Catholics today, important ideas we might discuss, interesting people we might speak with. Email me with your thoughts, billcastle at sbcglobal.net. That's B-I-L-L-K-A-S-S-E-L at sbcglobal.net. Be with us next time when we explore other aspects of religious communication and look deeper into the great Christian heritage of free expression. Free Expression with Bill Castle is a production of Good Shepherd Catholic Radio and Company Publications, where 
good books, good music, and good radio are always good company. Dan Curris provided technical assistance. Theme and incidental music are by Dan Adam. The program was produced and directed by Bill Castle. This is Good Shepherd Catholic Radio.